Okay, so we are going to spend the morning uh, dwelling on one verse this morning. Um, well, we're going to put that verse in its context, and that context is where we're going to sort of hover for the uh, foreseeable future in, uh, in Matthew. So if you will, turn with me to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, and we're going to be reading verse 1. Um, but to put it in context, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and then I'm going to skip ahead to verse 16 and read 16, 17, and 18. So um, read with me, if you, if you will, uh, from Matthew 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Let me reread that. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say, to you, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I want to ask five questions about this warning. I want to ask five questions to sort of dive deep into what Jesus means when he issues this warning. And then I want to highlight one incredible implication that will, I hope, change the way you live forever. So five questions, one implication. And that implication is the, is the bright, shining light behind this passage. All right, so my five questions are these. What does your righteousness mean? What, is, what does Jesus mean when he says your righteousness? All right. Second question, what's all this talk about rewards? Why are rewards playing so centrally in this passage, so significant in this passage? The third, just simply, what is hypocrisy? So you will be like the hypocrites. What does that mean? Fourth, why, why this warning now? All right, how, we just shifted from an appeal to lay down your lives in love for your enemies, right? And then, and then as soon as uh, he finishes that uh, section of the sermon, he pivots immediately into a warning about 
hypocrisy, and I want, to, I want to know why. And then finally, why focus on these three actions in particular? Giving and praying and fasting. That's what I want to do this morning. I want to, I want to answer those questions, and then I want to hone in on the implication, the central implication of this passage in this section. So first, let's, uh, let's ask the question, what does your righteousness mean? What does your righteousness mean? All right. Our biggest clue is, uh, is in 520, chapter 5, verse 20. Um, this is the first time this phrase is mentioned uh, in the sermon, and I think in Matthew. Uh, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Your righteousness, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then again, beware practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So so immediately when hearing these words, practicing your righteousness, the attentive audience would have said, oh, like the scribes and Pharisees, right? So that, that association is there, living in the background, of this passage, but um, I want to I ask the question, I want to draw near to this term righteousness because, because I think it can be pretty confusing. Uh, there are a few key terms in our faith that are so central that they can cause problems. We're going to deal with two of those today, righteousness and glory, all right? Righteousness and glory. Righteousness is so significant, it's so central to what we believe about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us and and, and how we can stand before the Father, uh, that, that often when we see it, we associate all of that theological context with this word. The problem is the, the inflexibility of English and the flexibility of this word in uh, Greek. So the way I want to resolve that, uh, that um, confusion is, is to talk about righteousness with a capital R, and righteousness with a lowercase r. Here's what I mean. We, in Christ, wear Christ's righteousness. This is what we refer to in uh, systematic theology as imputed righteousness. What we're referring to is, is the great trade, right? When, when Jesus took our sin upon Himself to the cross so that we might stand before the Father... Righteous, right? Capital R, righteous, which means when Christ uh, traded our sin for his righteousness and we stand before God, uh, we, he sees us as spotless and, and gloriously righteous, right? God relates to us according to the capital R righteousness of Christ, right? And that is a categorical distinction. You can't have a bad day as a Christian and lose that righteousness, right? In fact, that righteousness is our only hope on bad days. Make sense? Okay, now, there is also at play here in this sermon and all throughout the Scriptures, lowercase our righteousness or doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons, okay? Lowercase our righteousness, um, and, and often, when the Scriptures call us to do righteousness or to be 
righteous in a situation because we have this big capital R righteousness that's so central to our faith, we say, oh, this must be a call to lean upon Christ's work and righteousness. Now that, in a lot of cases, is not what's happening in the passage. Does that make sense? When we're called to be righteous, the assumption is that we are wearing Christ's righteousness and, and Christ's righteousness uh, that allows us to stand before the Father, that, that allows us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, is the foundation upon which we can do righteousness. Little r. Lowercase r. Are you tracking with me? Okay, so, so when you see your righteousness, I don't want you to do what a lot of people do, which is say, oh, I don't really have righteousness, but I, I have the righteousness of Christ." And so the righteousness of Christ certainly exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So I'm good to go. That's not, that's not what this passage is doing. All right? Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, and in this passage, and in this section, is calling his people to do righteousness, lowercase r, and that call assumes their righteousness, capital R. Right? Does it make sense? Okay. So the Sermon on the Mount is a call for Christ's people to do the right thing. Lowercase r, righteousness. We are called to fulfill the law in in, uh, ways similar to how Christ fulfilled the law. We are called to do what's right with the right heart at the right time for the right reasons, right? And so all that is is love-driven Law fulfillment, and that is a call that is true and real to you right now. But we can only do that if we have been granted by the mercy and grace of God the righteousness of Christ. Okay, all right. So that now that the distinction's there, um, this sermon is a call to do the right thing, right? So that's what the Sermon on the Mount is doing. It's, it's calling you to do the right thing. Lowercase r, righteousness. And this passage is a call to do the right thing for the right reasons. Right? To do the right thing for the right reasons. So, so again, we have this backdrop, which is chapter 5, verse 20. The scribes and the Pharisees. Right? The scribes and the Pharisees uh, are in some way righteous, right? The scribes and the Pharisees in, in some way are doing the right thing, right? Now that probably makes you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable too. But prayer and giving and fasting are the right thing to do, right? That's the right thing to do. And in fact, a lot of the ways that they were fulfilling the law were, at least at face value, the right thing to do. Um, they just weren't doing it for the right reasons. All right? And Jesus' people in, in 520 are called to a better righteousness. And we saw that play out all through chapter 5. Right? All through chapter 5. Jesus is, is making a distinction between the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and, and the true fulfillment of the law. All right? Now, with that backdrop, I want you to understand something that I think is implicit throughout this section, which is everyday people who are not believers, can do the right thing. All right? People can do the right thing. And you're going to see this uh, uh, not only in the Scriptures, you're going to see this all throughout uh, Christian history. Christians are, are dealing with 
unbelievers, some of whom are, are more noble than, than others, right? Some of whom seem to be actually trying to do the right thing. And those people seem to be sort of distinct from, from wicked men, okay? So, so on some level, you've got to face the fact that, that, that this passage implies uh, you, can, you can do the right thing in a way uh, outside of Christ. But, but the call here is to do the right thing for the right reasons. And, and I, I think uh, my contention is, and I, I think uh, this, is, this, is, this is clear throughout the New Testament, you can't actually do the right thing for the right reasons without the new birth of Christ. Right? You, can't, you can't actually do the right thing like giving generously for the right reasons, like seeking the Father's reward unless you have been regenerated in Christ. All right? so, so this sermon from, from, the, from the beginning of, of the Sermon on the Mount's introduction, we knew that this was a sermon to Christ's disciples. And we've been talking from the outset that Christ's uh, presupposition is that these people are His followers. And He's actually... Uh, he's actually assuming that they will wear his righteousness when he dies on their behalf, right? There's this really cool dynamic in the passage where he's preparing them for how to live when he dies and is raised again and sends them the Holy Spirit, right? So, so this is a passage to blood-bought believers. This is a call to blood-bought believers not only to do the right thing, but to do the right thing for the right reasons, which is a category that, that is exclusively for God's people. Okay. All right, so so much for your righteousness. What does your righteousness mean? It means doing the right thing for the right reasons, which is an act of faith, and we will see why here shortly. Now, second question, what is all this talk about rewards? What's all this talk about rewards? Let me ask you a few questions. I don't want you to shout the answers. I just want you to think about them for a second. What is the right reason to do the right thing? What is the right reason to do the right thing? The reason I ask you this question is because we have been given a whole lot of answers to those questions that are insufficient, right? We've been given a whole lot of answers to the question, why should I do the right thing that are not enough? They may have glimpses. They may have aspects of the truth. But they're insufficient. For instance, you should do the right thing out of a heart of gratitude because God has saved you and He has promised you heaven. And what kind of man are you if you don't do the right thing as a, as a way to say thank you? All right, now, gratitude is a major aspect to why we do what we do in worship, in praise, in service, in love. There is a reciprocation of mercy. There's a reciprocation of grace. That, that's a pretty fundamental element. Um, but I think it's noteworthy, that's not what Jesus chooses to highlight as the chief incentive for doing the right thing. Right? 
What about love? We should love people. God has loved us. We should love people. I just preached a sermon on love. Love's a great reason to do the right thing. Yes, uh, it, in a way, it plays a major role, right? What we do when we're doing the right thing is only the right thing if it's driven by love. But it's not a full answer to why we are doing the right thing. And I know that because Jesus calls out the real reason we are called to do the right thing. And that is the reward. The reward. I think it's ironic. I'm just parroting what we have. If you have been a part of the Young, Restless, and Reform movement for the last 20 years, we have all heard what, uh, uh, what uh, Piper and others have preached for, for, since like 1985, which is um, you cannot help but seek a reward. You cannot help it. There is no such thing as acting merely out of gratitude, merely out of love. You cannot help but, seeking, but seek a reward. In fact, you are doing it right now. All of our actions are driven by the expectation of happiness or joy on the other side of that action, or else we wouldn't do it. I don't have time to sort of tease out, and probably I'm not the best person in this congregation to tease out why and how that is the way people work. But it is the way people work. We are seeking the reward. All right? You are doing it right now. Why do you go to work? Is it because you love people? You're probably loving people at work if you follow Jesus. No, you go to work because you get paid. Now, if your boss said, I don't feel like paying you anymore. You may, for a time, keep serving that person, but I can, I can bet you're going to go find another job at some point, right? Because you're working for money, right? Okay, now there are, there are, there are many, many, many examples of this phenomenon, but the reason I highlight it here is that Jesus has established a a straight-line relationship, a strong correlation between righteousness and glory. The appropriate reward for righteousness, for doing the right thing, especially if it costs you, is glory. All right? And when we do the right thing, we are actually seeking glory. But here's the thing. It will come from one and only one of two directions. The glory that you receive, it's going to come from one of two directions. Either it will be the glory that comes from men. You will either seek the glory that comes from men. What does that look like? We all know what it looks like. I don't even need to explain it. You know right now. What does it look like when you do the right thing and people can see it and you're doing the right thing in such a way that a lot of people see it? How do they respond? Honor, admiration, respect. A reputation of being a genuinely good guy. People start to think you're wise. People start to think you're pious. Right? When you walk in the room, there's an air of respect. The glory that comes from men is pleasant and attractive. 
But Jesus says, if that's what we're seeking, we won't get the glory that comes from God. Now, I, I mentioned earlier, glory is one of those words like righteousness that is so huge, that it's so central, that it's very easy to forget what it even means. Um, I, I could try single-handedly to, to explain the concept of glory, but I would be remiss if I didn't read uh, what are, I think, some of the finest words uh, written in English uh, to Christians ever. Um, and, and certainly one of the best explanations of, of what the glory of God is. Uh, and that is, that is written in an essay uh, called The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. It is worth your time. It is worth your time. It's free on the internet. Uh, there's a PDF. I'll link it on Realm. If I remember, sometimes I say that and I forget. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, I'm going to read at length C.S. Lewis's explanation of glory. What is the glory of God? What does that mean? What, is, what does it mean to enjoy the glory of God? All right. Here goes. I was shocked to find such different Christians as Milton, Johnson, and Thomas Aquinas taking heavenly glory, quite frankly in the sense of fame or good report. But not fame conferred by our fellow creatures. Fame with God. Approval, or I might say appreciation, by God. And then when I had thought it over, I saw that this view was scriptural. Nothing can eliminate from the parable the divine accolade, well done, thou good and faithful servant. With that, a good deal of what I had been thinking all my life fell down like a house of cards. I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child, and nothing is so obvious in a child, not a conceited child, but in a good child, as its great and undisguised pleasure in being praised. Not only in a child either, but even in a dog or a horse. Apparently, what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is, in fact, the humblest the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures, nay, the specific pleasure of the inferior, the pleasure of a beast before men, a child before its father, a pupil before its teacher, a creature before its creator. I am not forgetting how horribly this most innocent desire is parodied in our human ambitions, or how very quickly in my own experience the lawful pleasure of praise from those whom it was my duty to please turns into the deadly poison of self-admiration. But I thought I could detect a moment, a very, very short moment before this happened, during which the satisfaction of having pleased those whom I rightly loved and rightly feared was pure. And that is enough to raise our thoughts to what may happen when the redeemed soul, beyond all hope and nearly beyond belief, learns at last that she has pleased Him whom she was created to please. There will be no room for vanity then. She will be free from the miserable illusion that it is her doing, with no taint of what we should call now self-approval. She will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made her to be, and the moment which heals her old inferiority complex forever will also drown her pride deeper than Prospero's book. Perfect humility dispenses with modesty. 
If God is satisfied with the work, the work may be satisfied with itself. It is not for her to bandy compliments with her sovereign. I can imagine someone saying that he dislikes my idea of heaven as a place where we are patted on the back. But proud misunderstanding is behind that dislike. In the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either with one expression or with the other, either conferring glory inexpressible or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think about God. By God Himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of Him is of no importance except insofar as it relates to how He thinks of us. It is written that we shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in, as an artist delights in his work or a father in his son. It seems impossible, a weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. What is the glory of God? What is the honor, the approval of God? It has the faintest dimmest shadow in the honor and approval of men. But when the, cre- when the Creator looks upon His creature with pleasure and joy, the approval of men seems a parody. So, we have to choose an object in our Righteousness. The short-term object, the honor and the admiration of men. But the long-term object, which dwarfs and overwhelms even the brightest display of the admiration of men, is the glory of God. And if we choose one, we do it at the expense of the other. So, third question. What is hypocrisy? What is hypocrisy? I think we're starting to draw near to that answer. First, if the pursuit of righteousness always ends in only one sort of glory, then we're clearly left with the choice. And hypocrisy is what happens when you pursue glory in the short term. When you pursue the glory of man. Now, this word hypocrisy or hypocrite is, uh, is what we call a transliteration. And I'll be honest, guys, I hate transliterations. I don't think they're helpful almost at all. There's a few transliterations that are actually in the Bible, so I can't officially dislike those. Um, for instance... Uh, where Luke says, truly, truly, the other Gospels say, amen, right? 
Amen. Um, a transliteration is when, instead of, uh, instead of translating, simply translating a word, we actually uh, pull a word uh, from the old language and, and import it into ours. Um, now, the reason I don't like transliteration is we, did it, we do it a lot more than the New Testament did. Like, for instance, uh, pastor. Uh, pastor is a brutal uh, 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 series of transliterations because pastor is actually Latin. It's not Greek. So we took the Greek word for shepherd and then we, and then we uh, 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 imported it into Latin and, and, and used the word pastor in Latin. And then instead of actually translating pastor as shepherd, we just use the word pastor now. So, uh, I think there's some clarity in saying that these men are shepherds, right? Shep- the, the role itself actually clarifies what we are called to do. And, it, and it's a lot more clear if we're not shepherding uh, that we're off, right? And that's just an opinion. Uh, a lot of people don't agree with me, but that's fine. Um, another word, deacon. Uh, deacon is actually transliteration from the Greek. Deacon means servant. Uh, it does create some confusion, uh, even in the New Testament, because uh, deacon is a formal office, uh, and it's also uh, an adjective that's used of many Christians. And so New Testament scholars are always trying to sort out which is actually being used as a, as a, as a formal title and which is not. Um, but I think it would be really cool and helpful if we called people a servant of the church as an official role. I think it'd it'd be neat. But anyways, you get the idea. A transliteration is when, instead of translating a word, we actually take the original word uh, and import it into our own language. Um, Now, we did this with hypocrite, uh, and I think that's just completely unnecessary, because hypocrite is just the Greek word for actor. All right? Actor, or play actor. Um, Hypocrite uh, is the Greek word used to describe the, uh, the job of the guys who stand on the stage and play roles uh, to win the applause of men. Okay? So when you explain that, all of a sudden, there's very few questions left about what does hypocrite mean. Right? Hypocrite refers to actors who take on roles to win the applause of men. The world is their stage, and they are in it for the fame actors, not uh, not like it, it is now. You can't you can't you can't uh, in ancient Greek make twenty million dollars for a single film. Uh, I'm just completely ignoring uh, you know currency uh, exchange rates and stuff. But um, you you weren't uber rich ever as an actor, but you could be famous. You could be respected. So so when. Christ uses this word, he's referring to those who who treat the world as their stage. They're doing what they're doing to win the applause of men. And in this case, there's some gravity to it because what they're doing is they're pretending to talk to God. Or, in some cases, they're actually talking to God. Um, I think you should shed the baggage that we have for this term, uh, there's actually, I, I think most people, when they use the term hypocrite, they're referring to people who are, who are at face value, 
uh, pretending to do the right thing, but they're actually bad and wicked inside. That, that is one of like several different categories of person that is referred to in the scriptures by this term. Uh, there are other categories, like people who actually honestly believe they're doing the right thing, but they're just doing it in such a way that they can also win the approval of man, right? So, so don't just think the creepy guy is like, I'm going to go pray publicly so people think I'm awesome, but I don't even believe in God. It's not, it's not necessarily that. In fact, uh, I think what you're seeing here and, and what you're going to see in all the Gospels is that the Pharisees genuinely believed that they were the right ones. They genuinely believed that they were doing what's right. Um, but they did what they did for the applause of men. Uh, John says it explicitly. explicitly. Uh, Jesus is re- re- uh, relating to the Pharisees, and he says, you can't, you can't seek God's glory because you're seeking man's glory. Right? Okay, so that's hypocrisy, and that, that's the big warning. If you begin to set as your object the praise of men, if that is a nice perk, and then it becomes... Well, why would I do this you know, privately when I could also do it publicly and, and get this too? And then it becomes, uh, why don't I put myself in certain situations so that people see these actions, right? Um, as, it, as it becomes a more and more chief objective, you are, are, are becoming like the hypocrites, as Jesus said. You, you have set the world as your stage. That glory is diametrically opposed to the Father's glory. So to the degree that you seek that glory, you have traded that glory for the Father's glory. And that's the big warning. Now, the fourth question, why now? Why, why, why this warning? And why now? So, If you have been with us since we started the Sermon on the Mount or since we started this series, you know that from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Christ was setting an expectation of righteousness for His people. Christ is setting an expectation of, of righteousness for His people. And every step from 520 to 61 is further clarifying how you ought to do what's right for the right reasons. Right? Every step. And if you take that call seriously, and all of Jesus' true disciples will, then people will begin to be aware of your righteousness. This is inevitable. This is inevitable. This is what I think Jesus means when He's referring to the city on the hill or the salt of the world. When you are actually doing what Christ has called you to do, people will notice. Some people will be bothered to a degree that they will hate you, and some people will sense from you the aroma of life in Christ. But you will be visible. Alright? And at the same time, when you're doing what Christ has called you to do, which is to pursue peace, Right? To, to, to crush anger in your heart and to, to pursue peace, to become a peacemaker and, and to pursue purity. 
and integrity and self-sacrificial love, when you're actually laboring day by day toward holiness, then a lot of the world's distractions will inevitably seem less attractive than they used to. What I mean is, you pursue purity for years and for decades. The notion that you're going to walk in a coffee shop, share a glance with someone, and that and that's going to become an adulterous affair is laughable. Is laughable. Now, what I'm not saying is that at some point you become immune to base temptations. But what I am saying is, as you pursue Christ, as you pursue holiness, according to this call that is here in this sermon, your virtue will mean that you are, you are less tempted by these base pleasures. Alright? So with those two things in concert, with this like, growing day by day, growing virtue, this, this growing display of righteousness and self-sacrificial love against the backdrop of, of, of miles of distance between you and, and base temptations, the natural and inevitable consequence of that work of pursuit is the admiration of men. Is the admiration of men. And that admiration can become an idol of its own. So hypocrisy, in a way, is one of the few temptations that can haunt even the most mature Christians. Are you tracking with me? Does this make sense? I mean, after years of pursuit of purity, you're probably not tempted when you go to the the convenience store to to grab a 24-pack and go get wasted. Right? That's probably not your chief temptation. However, after years of pursuing purity and doing the right thing, still looming is the admiration of men. Right? Still looming is the admiration of men. In fact, if you, if you, if you track carefully uh, the, the rise and fall of many uh, evangelical figureheads, You can trace their downfall by shifting allegiance and objective from the glory of God to the glory of man. Right? And then you have thousands upon thousands of people who have been been learning from you and trying to walk with the obedience uh, to which you're calling them and which you're evidencing. And then seemingly overnight, Everything falls apart because as it turns out, you began to crave that admiration. You began to crave the opportunity to receive the praise of men. So, so this, this temptation, I think, is on some level unique because, because as you pursue Christ in the way that He's called you to pursue Him, you're going to be tempted by the admiration of men in a way you wouldn't have been before. Right? Okay. So I think that's why it's here Right now, on the heels of this progression, 
from uh, a call to purity to a call to self-sacrificial love. If you're taking him seriously and you, and you get there, then this warning is important and appropriate. All right. Now, that kind of helps us answer the fifth question and the last question, which is, why focus on these actions in particular? Now, we're going to spend a sermon on each one of these paragraphs, on, on, on giving and on prayer and on fasting. But I want to generally, before we dive into the details, I want to ask, why, why these? These aren't the only disciplines, right? So, so why focus on these? Um, and I think the answer is that these actions seem to be the next step in Jesus' radical call to holiness. Right? The Sermon on the Mount is a radical call to holiness. Jesus is calling His people to be righteous, to, to, to do righteousness, to be holy as I am holy. We just read that. As, as the Father is holy. And I think you can see a progression here because at the very outset of this call, you, you see Him forbidding sin. Right? He forbids anger and He forbids lust. And he forbids divorce. And he forbids dishonesty. And the call then is, don't do those things. Right? And then then you see somewhat of a shift where he's then reflecting on how others relate to you. And he's not merely forbidding actions. He's calling you, in a positive sense, to mercy and to love. Right? So, 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 don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And, and when you find yourself in this position, do this and do this. Right? So there's this, this gradation uh, or, or this progression from for resisting your basest instincts to reflecting the mercy and love of God. And then right here, we see the pursuit of grace and the pursuit of God's presence in giving and in prayer and in fasting. So this list, on some level, teaches us that doing the right thing isn't merely about not doing the wrong thing. Right? Doing the right thing is not merely about not doing the wrong thing. Doing the right things involves resistance and pursuit. And what we see here is the pursuit of lavish displays of God's generosity, the pursuit of God's presence itself and God's grace and mercy in, in, in my situation and the pursuit of absolute and total single-minded devotion, which is, I think, fasting. The path from resisting temptation in the negative sense to pursuing God's presence in the positive sense seems to reflect the Christian's path to maturity. So as you gain success in resisting sin, and as you successfully embody the mercy and love of God, and as you successfully pursue God's presence in the disciplines, your maturity is going to make you the object of the admiration and respect of men. And that's why that warning exists right now. Now, I want to give one more evidence that that this progression is indeed uh, how sanctification works. And it's not just here, it's in in the New Testament, in the Bible. 
So I'm going to read from Titus 2, 11 through 14. And, and just listen to that progression. Listen. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our own great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. So you see this progression from resisting ungodliness to pursuing God Himself and good works. Right? So that progression, I think, is in the Sermon on the Mount. And that progression sort of evidences why this warning is here right now. So, if giving sacrificially and pursuing God's grace and presence in prayer and fasting represents on some level the pinnacle of Christian maturity then it is here we ought to expect the, the attack of temptation. All right? We are saltiest and we are brightest when our lives are shaped by the pursuit of God. I think that's what you see here. You see Christ reflecting on the pursuit of God. And when we're doing that, when we've, when we've chased after holiness and purity and we pursue God wholeheartedly in prayer and fasting... We're saltiest and brightest. And that bright display of virtue is appealing to people. It earns respect and admiration of men. And that feels nice. That respect and admiration feels nice. And I think what our enemy does at that moment is leverages that nice feeling to torpedo our efforts to do the right thing. He leverages that nice feeling of the respect and admiration of men to torpedo this entire work of holiness and pursuit. That's why this warning is so central in the Sermon on the Mount. We see it teased out in several different ways. So this section of Jesus' sermon is meant to prepare you for a battle. And I think it's a battle unique to those characterized by a wholehearted, radical pursuit of holiness. Now, that is not to say there are, there are not hypocrites who are out there, just base and wicked. But this warning is for those who have taken Christ seriously every step of the Sermon on the Mount. I want to be pure in heart. I want to see God. I, I don't want to be angry anymore. I don't want to be... Uh, uh, I don't want to lust anymore. I want to be honest and I want, to, I want to be merciful, and I want to be loving, just like God is, and I want to, I want to see Him, and I want, to, I want to dwell in His presence. Right? That, that, the situation of those pursuing holiness, which is another way to say, the situation of true Christians, means that this warning is something you have to take very seriously. And don't miss the implication of that sentence. If you are not pursuing holiness, ask serious questions about whether or not you're a Christian. True Christians do this. True Christians do the fight against sin. True Christians do the reflection of mercy and love. And true Christians do give, pray, and fast 
longing for the presence and kingdom of God. If that doesn't characterize your life, ask serious questions and come speak to us. Let's talk about it. All right, so, so much for the answers to the questions. I think that kind of clarifies the meaning of this passage and it sets the stage for dealing with this section. Um, but I want to I highlight one incredible implication. One incredible implication. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. For then, you will, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And the implication, I think, is this. Our Father, the Father who sees your secret works, will reward your pursuit of righteousness with glory. He will. Our Father who sees what you're doing in secret will reward you unless you pursue the glory of men. And what that means is your secret giving, your clandestine giving, will be rewarded by the Father who sees. And this is my favorite. This is my favorite because I can't tell you how many times I've sat down and prayed and I felt like it was a worthless labor. I felt like I wasn't even being heard. I felt like I was, I was just speaking words into an empty room. That's why this is my favorite. Your closet prayers will be rewarded by the Father who sees and the Father who hears. They will. They will. And your secret fasts will be rewarded by the Father who knows. And by the way, by the Father who satisfies. So the implication that should shift your attention of this passage from a scary warning to a beautiful reality is that God rewards those who do these things. God rewards those who pray in secret, who give in secret, who fast in secret. Okay. All right, so a few thoughts and a bit of advice, and then we'll be done. First, I just think it's noteworthy. Everyone in this passage is rewarded. Every single actor in this passage is rewarded. Every individual in this passage is rewarded. Now, what's interesting about that is that you have behind it the same promise that we just reflected on, which is God will reward. Um, But we also see the reward of men. I think you can do a bunch with this information. But, but what I want to highlight here is if you're giving generously in secret and if you're praying in secret and if you're fasting in secret and you're not receiving the accolades of men for those works, you've got some good things coming. You've got some good things coming. If, if you're not the object of the praise of men for your works of righteousness... Boy, the Father's glory is awaiting you. Father's glory is awaiting you. Praise God. Second, um, 
The assumption of these passages is that you will be giving and praying and fasting. Listen to his words. When you pray. Listen to his words. When you fast. Boy, that'll hurt. I don't think it means just the one time in your life. When you give to the needy, the The implication of this section is that you will be doing these things. You're in Christ. Your giving should be generous and it should be secret. And, and when you're in Christ, your prayer should be often and it should be secret. And when you're in Christ, you should be fasting. And we'll talk more about that when we get into those passages themselves. All right, third, public generosity and prayer and fasting when privately absent are strong evidence, evidences of hypocrisy. Public generosity and public prayer and public fasting when privately absent are strong evidences of hypocrisy and you need to heed this warning. If you're the first person to pray at the dinner table, but you haven't sat down in your closet and prayed in weeks, this is about you. If you pray in gatherings and you don't pray at home, this is about you. If you give when you know it'll be on a ledger, when you know that people will see and notice, but you don't give in secret, this warning is for you. You are sacrificing the glory of God. And that should terrify you. So audit your prayer life. Prayer is the easiest of these three to audit. Fasting, for, for reasons that are clear, going to look different with everybody. Some people medically can't do the types of fasting that sometimes we see in the scriptures or sometimes we see in our own life and practice. And, and giving is situational. But prayer, prayer, prayer ought to be not only a daily thing, but a constant thing. Do you know what pray without ceasing means? It means never stop praying. It's just a fancy way to say never stop praying. So, so if your prayer life is exclusively public and, and absent privately or, or thin and dying privately, repent. See your heart for where it is. Okay. And finally, when all the other reasons elude you, remember that the Father's reward is an excellent reason to keep giving and to keep praying and to keep fasting. Every time I fasted, like literally like four hours after I stop eating, I think, what really is fasting for? Right? I think, what is this doing? Like, what, what's, am I just like being an ascetic? And I start to convince myself that, that I don't have good enough reasons to fast right now. And maybe fasting is just for particular situations or particular 
moments in my prayer life or whatever, when you pray, you're going to hit a wall. If you're praying right, <laughs> you're going to hit a wall where you're tired and you feel like you're speaking into the absence, the void, and you feel like there's nobody hearing you. You start to ask yourself, what am I even doing here? And when you give, sometimes you're tempted to say, I keep giving and it doesn't seem to matter. I keep, I keep giving and this person finds himself in a rough spot again. I keep giving. Whatever it is, your mind and flesh will come up with reasons to undermine all of your reasons for doing this good work of pursuit. When you get there, and you can't think of a single reason to keep praying. Can't think of a single reason to keep giving. Can't, keep a, can't think of a single reason to keep fasting. Here's your reason. You'll be rewarded. The reward awaits you of glory. That's why. I, I, don't, I don't know why right now except to know that God will reward me in my secret prayers. Amen? And may that confidence and hope in the glory of God promised us because of the work of Christ drive our pursuit. Amen? Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray and let's take the supper together.